0: right, everyone, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Galatians. And uh, we're going to be in the the second half of Galatians 3 this evening. And uh, this is is going to be primarily a focal point on that continued discussion we've had even in the past several weeks between faith and the law. And Paul is really hammering this home. And uh, if you're just joining us within this Galatians series online or here in person, uh, I I just want to encourage you, take this next week and read through the whole book of Galatians. I've said this multiple times, but it's six chapters. Start and do one chapter on Monday. You'll finish by Saturday. And then Sunday we are back in the book of Galatians together. And it's a great way for you to see the whole of this letter that Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia, this region of churches. And uh, specifically, we've been utilizing this study method, um, and uh, I'm going to give you your weekly quiz, okay, and uh, we're going to grasp this, and if you're new with us, if you're tuning in, you're not expected to get this right away, but after this, man, you're going to hear this multiple times, okay? So we're, I'm going to count to three, I'm going to have you say it, just like we do each and every week, to ingrain this into your mind, and I'm pretty sure that from this point forward, after 12 weeks of this, you're going, anytime you see these letters together, it's the first thing you're going to think of, okay? So I'm going to count to three, we're going to say it out loud together, okay? One, two, three, Obs. Observation, interpretation, application. Great. And uh, the whole point of this, we spent quite a bit of time last week in observation, taking the time to just go through the text, to chew on it, to really mull on what's happening, and then spend time interpreting that. And I'm going to focus a little more time tonight on the interpretation element specifically a a really cool tool that we can put kind of into our toolbox as we uh, navigate the scriptural text, the biblical text, uh, when we get to the interpretive element. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to kind of jump a little bit ahead because I'm going to give you three specific words that you're going to see primarily just in the first couple of verses in Galatians 3. We're going to start in verse 15 tonight. And I'll actually show that to you if you're looking at your Bibles um, before we really move forward a whole lot. Um, And then we'll go back and look at this a little more. But specifically in verse 15, uh, it says to give a human example, brothers. Now, right away, we should recognize that this sentence is a what? What do you see here that Paul is doing? What is he doing that should make us react in some way. At the very beginning of this verse, what should we be doing? Pausing, right? We should stop because he's clearly talking about something. He's continuing a conversation or a discussion and specifically giving an example. And that implies that there's something before this that we should know and be aware of. And so to kind of summarize that, and what we discussed last week is, Paul is really focused on this concept that you cannot obtain righteousness through the Mosaic Law, but it is only through faith in Christ that you can be justified, that you can be counted as righteous, that you can be seen as innocent before God. And so now he goes on from here. He's going to give a specific example of what that looks like. So if we were to bring this into modern day terms, Paul's about about to give everyone in Galatia a sermon illustration. He's going to bring it to a modern day thought so that they kind of grasp the picture of what he's trying to emphasize. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, that's as far as I'm going to go for these three words, right away there's three words there that are not super common words. And so I'm going to go back here. Specifically, these three words kind of stand out in verse 15. Covenant, annul, and ratify. Now, ultimately this brings about the question, when I'm going through my observation... All I should be doing is circling or writing down on a blank piece of paper or a notebook or in my journal, what are the words that I just don't know what they mean. If you don't know what a word means in your Bible, don't just continue reading. Stop. Mark it down, then keep reading, and when you get to interpretation, come back to it and actually find out what it means. Because it may be a long time before we come to that passage on Sunday morning. And then what are you going to think? Well, I I didn't know what that word meant back then when I studied it. I guess I do now. But what difference would it make if we, every time we come to that, we stop. And in our interpretive study, we actually go through and identify that. So I want to give you just briefly uh, several tools you can use that make this portion of interpretation easier. And the first one of those tools, it looks like this in book form. It's one of my biggest books I have. <laughs> okay? And what this is, is this is a concordance. And it's specifically an exhaustive concordance of the entire Bible. And all this is, is it is a giant dictionary of words that shows you, at first, every single place in the English biblical text where you could find that same word, okay? But the second thing it does is it gives you Greek and Hebrew numerals that correlate specifically to what word that is in the original language. And then when you go to the back, you can look at those exact numbers and see the definition of those words, okay? This is a very, very, very useful tool and can simplify that process a lot. Now, that's not the only tool at your disposal. There's also a Bible dictionary. This shortens the amount of time a little bit, but does not give you near as much information or resource. It will just define the word for you without giving you all the places it's mentioned in Scripture. And the third option is actually the one I use the most now because over the years I've just invested in Bible study software because it makes the task so much simpler and faster. And uh, these are two Bible softwares that I would recommend to any of you. And uh, each of these has a free application and web version that you can put on your smartphone, you can put on your tablet, you can put on your computer, and it gives you a basic amount of materials to get you started in your study. Okay? Logos Bible Software is what I use to do all of my uh, extra biblical preparations and studies when it comes to commentaries, when it comes to translations of the Bible, when it comes to word studies. And then Olive Tree Bible Software is another one that I have many friends that have used and really like. The cool thing about these is also allows you to purchase books that go directly into that software. So when you type in a word, if it's in this other book, it will bring it up automatically for you. You don't have to try and go find it. It just does it instantly. Amazing tool, amazing resource that would give you the ability to do some of these studies right in your hands, right next to you as you're studying the scripture. Okay? Now, to specifically go back to our words, covenant... If we were to go to the concordance, this is what we would see as the defining terms of the word covenant. It's a promise, a will, or a treaty. And we're going to recognize how Paul kind of uses this in his human example in verse 15 when we come to that here soon. Now, something I've mentioned a couple of times, but it's really important for you as the church to recognize... And I'm going to quiz you for a minute. I don't expect any of you to know this, but if you do, bonus points for you. How many, do you know how many crucial covenants are in both the Old Testament and the New Testament? That we would call crucial to the entirety of what the biblical text is proclaiming. How many is there? Does anyone have a guess? Okay, it's a full hand. Five. There's five covenants that are super crucial for you to remember. The first one of those is the Noahic covenant. We find that in Genesis chapter 9. This Noahic covenant is most commonly recognized by the rainbow in the sky. God's promise to Noah that I will not again flood the earth. The Noahic covenant. The Noahic promise, will, or treaty. However you want to look at that, okay? The Noahic covenant. The second one is the Abrahamic covenant. The next couple of weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time referring to the Abrahamic covenant. We see this in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, where God promises Abraham both physical location on earth for his Inheritance, But more specifically, he states to Abraham, Through your offspring, I will bring blessing to whom? All the earth. All the earth. Through you, I will bless all the earth. The Abrahamic covenant. Then the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 19. This is what we recognize as the Mosaic law. This specifically, these promises given to Moses that if the people followed after these laws, it would go well with them. Then the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7 was God's promise or covenant to David that it would be his lineage that would remain king forever. In essence, he promised David that the coming king who would rule and reign would be of his lineage. This correlates very importantly with the genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament. This is why it's so important that we see correlations between the two. And the fifth one is is the one we probably recognize the most. It is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. It is what we remember every time we take communion together. And the importance where Jesus establishes this new covenant in His blood, and He gives a new commandment to His disciples to love each other just as I have loved you. Okay, this is all correlated together. Five specific covenants that are the skeletal framework of the entirety of scripture. I really long for you to be able to recognize these. I personally didn't recognize these until I went to Bible college. I want you guys to be people who hear that and you go, I already knew that. We were taught that. We got that. Because it is a such a crucial part to us seeing the whole gospel, the whole Bible as moving towards the gospel. It is fully encapsulated in that. Now, the second, the other words here, annul, is to set aside, reject, or disregard. And then to ratify is to confirm, validate, or establish. Okay? Now, we could do word studies all night long. I just wanted to give you an example of how to use simple biblical tools that you have access to. And by the way, I haven't mentioned this, if any of you ever wanted to borrow some of these resources, I have, I have multiples of many, because I've just accumulated books from other pastors and other people. So if you ever want to borrow some of these resources, grab me after service, say, I'd really like to have a concordance to use for a while. I'd really like a Bible dictionary. Or email me and say, I'd like to buy one, I really don't know what to get. Let me help you get the tools in your toolbox you need to do this work well, okay? Now, let's move on into the actual text and read a little bit about what we can grasp as we move through into interpretation and even application. So if if 15, to give you a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So to clarify that, Paul's saying, Hey, in your man-made promises, wills, treaties, when it's been decided and affirmed and all parties are in agreement, no one comes in and just starts changing things and just starts making it void or pushing it aside and saying that really doesn't matter. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. Everyone say one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. So he goes on to clarify here. Paul understands. Okay, you didn't get it the first time. This I'm going to clarify it in a way that you understand, Church of Galatia. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul, okay, there's that word again. It does not void or push aside a covenant previously ratified or affirmed, solidified by God. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no, it no longer comes by promise. That's a really important statement, church. If the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. It cannot do both. But God gave it to Abraham by what? A promise. Everyone say promise. Now, have you ever experienced a broken promise? Has anyone ever experienced that before? Someone promised something to you, and it was broken? How many of you have experienced that with a sibling? Put your hand up. Come on, don't be shy. I I know you have. I, I know I'm not the only one who's experienced that, okay? And I see this in my own kids, right? Where they know, for selfish motive, they can go to their siblings and say, Hey, if you do this, if you do this for me, I promise I'll do your chores. And then they do it and they get in trouble. And the other one's kind of stand in the corner like, I don't know why. I, don't, I, I didn't tell them to do anything. So the promise becomes null and void, right? Well, the encouraging truth here is that it's not Abraham who gave the promise to God, right? It's not that man made some agreement or contract with God. God is the initiator of the promise. And so by default, it is not man we have to be concerned about here. We need to ask the question, is God faithful to his promises? Ultimately, if the answer to that question is yes, then what he promised to Abraham Still remains true. And what he promised to David still remains true. And what he's promised in Christ still remains true. Now, some of you go, well, what, what about the Mosaic Covenant? Well, and the reality is, the Mosaic Covenant is so unique. And we're going to see this even later in the text. Because the Mosaic Covenant was structured so much differently in the sense that it was contractual. Israel, do these things and it will go well with you. Do these things that I have set before you and you're going, to be count, you're, you're going to be in right standing with me. And yet, what did God say to Abraham when he believed him in Genesis? It was counted to him as righteousness. His belief, his faith is what... Determined that and we're going to talk about that a little more. So there's really two applications We can draw just even from these first two verses The first one of those is there is one family united in faith God's promise to Abraham was not for his Offsprings plural but offspring and that offspring is united in Christ everyone say Christ But the second application Within the the text to the church at Galatia is this emphatic emphasis that God's promises are certain. And nothing is going to annul or change what God has ratified and solidified. And there are many personal applications we, right here and now, can take even from that. If God's promises are certain, I have nothing to fear in this day. Now, let's move on into the next portion of this text. Why then the law? This is a logical question. If all of this took place and God's promise to Abraham was consistent, why did the law come into being in the first place? What purpose did it serve? And he answers this logical question in the next portion. It was added because of transgressions. In other words, because of sin. Until the offspring, it's singular again, this is important. Until the one family, the offspring, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, I'm going to be honest. Verses 19 and 20 are challenging when it comes to interpretation. And you could read six different commentators on what he means here in the end of verse 19 and end of verse 20. And get some different perspectives. The emphasis that I want to draw out here is we can get really, really distracted by this. Or we can admit, okay, I I could come to some conclusions here. But what is the overarching message he's trying to communicate to the churches in Galatia? And it comes back to this, that God is one unit. In other words, God's not contradicting himself regardless of who he uses. And in fact, what we see, even as we look back, is God specifically promised to Abraham what he was going to do. It was a one-to-one entity. And when it came to God's covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses, it was communicated through multiple entities. It was communicated to Moses somehow, and then from Moses it was communicated to the people. It was not the same one-to-one as it was with just God to Abraham, okay? And so there's a distinction here, but at the end of all of this, there's an emphasis that, hey, don't get distracted by this aspect of multiple here because God is one entity. And he goes on from this and asks the question, well, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? If the two don't mesh, is it contrary And what is the answer? Certainly not. Everyone say, no. Okay? For if a law had been given, get this, church. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that... The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now I'm going to interpret and summarize that for you. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The law revealed the depth of humanity's need for more than himself. The law revealed the true nature of man. By putting in all these rules that had to be followed, it revealed ultimately, and its purpose was to draw the people to the only one who could truly save them. And we see this time and again in the Old Testament, right? We saw it in Samuel, where the people saw God completely deliver them over and over and over, and yet they would stray. The law was in place as a means to, try, to draw the people back in recognition that you can't do this. You can't do this on your own. You're going to have to have faith and believe that I am a God who prom- follows through on my promises here. And man, the nation of Israel proved that that was the case. It still is the case for us. And so ultimately it comes to this, right? Right? There is no law that can give lasting life. Because he said, even there, if there a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it can't. There is no law that can give lasting life. Now, moving on even from here, he says, Now before, this is verse 23, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Okay, this goes back to that same idea of imprisonment. The law imprisons. Sin imprisons. The more I see God's specific commandments spoken, the more I see, or should see, my need for a Savior. Until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our Guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith Now this term guardian Is really interesting Because the term guardian essentially means the law Was the chaperone How many of you have played that role before and had to chaperone some of you are chuckling? Okay, it's an interesting role because generally when you chaperone you see a lot of things that are potential happenings that have to be curbed and stopped. The law functions the same way. Look, the way you're living is not okay. What you are doing is not right. How do you know? Because the law identifies it's not okay. And ultimately, the more you realize what's not okay, the more you realize how desperately you need God. How desperately you need a Savior. Until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. In Christ, what the law couldn't accomplish on its own was accomplished. In Christ, and this is what Paul's trying to get the Church of Galatia to understand in Christ there is no longer a need for the guardian in the same way as there was before Jesus why? because the guardian's ultimate job was to draw people to recognize their need for what was accomplished in Christ and it was fulfilled in him but now this is the cool thing, there's a contrast here before faith came but now Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all, everyone say all, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is one of those passages, man, when we read, it should just fire us up. Because ultimately Paul's coming right out of the gate and he's saying, church, You are no longer under the slavery and bondage and guardian of the law. You are free in Christ. You are free through faith in Christ. All are sons of God through faith. Now, recognize here, because this is a distinction that I have heard people misspeak on. We are all as human beings, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, we are all as humans created in the image of God. We are only sons and daughters of the King through Christ. The only way we have relationship eternally is through Christ. Nobody outside of the family of God are sons and daughters of Christ. They are made in God's image. But there is a distinction here between those who have the privilege of being adopted into God's family through Jesus. And we're going to talk specifically about script, biblical adoption next week and the, the, the depth of theology there. But here's what he says at the end of this text. And we're going we're gonna to f- focus in on a couple of final applications there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one everyone say one you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise now here is the application we see there. There is one family united in faith. Now, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? It should, because this is the same thing we said from the first section in application. And this is how, when we see the application in multiple portions of the text, this is how I come to you with the main ideas. That is the thoughts that if you get nothing else out of this, this is the one thing I want you to get. And that brings to this. True unity is found in Christ. True unity is only found in Christ. Why? Why is true unity only found in Christ? It's because His promises are certain and the law cannot give lasting life. The law can't give it. This unity is not rooted in policy or in race. It is not rooted in our likes or dislikes. It's not rooted in our jobs or our wealth. It's not rooted in status, age, or maturity. It is rooted in this one truth. And I'm going to have you repeat this one truth along with me. So I'm going to say a phrase, and I want you to speak it back to me. Okay? And I want you to speak it back boldly. Even if you're watching on the video, I want you to speak this out wherever you're at and listening to this. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. Christ died for sinners. Christ rose victorious over death. In Christ there is life. For all who believe. And all who believe are siblings in Christ. Church, all those who believe are siblings in Christ. There is unity in Jesus. And if someone in my circle of influence is not my sibling in Christ, I should long that they are. And if I don't long for that, then there is a problem with me, not them. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they've been. It doesn't matter where they've come from. We are entrusted with this message of hope and the gospel. And my singular focus, regardless of what I have in front of me, regardless of my job, regardless of the burdens on my shoulder, is to see all those who are not part of this family to be welcomed in. And you may be the only member of this family that welcomes them in. Don't be the member of this family that pushes other people away. And I'm going to tell you, if we can be a family united in these truths... The world cannot contain the power that exists by the Spirit of God indwelling in His people and moving them from where we are to where He's called us to be. True unity is found in Christ. Let's make sure we're modeling that, we're living that out, and everything we say and do is rooted in that reality because we have been given the greatest treasure on earth. In Jesus. Let's seek. To bring our community. Into that family. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And we're going to pray. And then we're going to close with two songs. And the first one of those songs is. Uh, it's a newer song. And So. I want you, during that first song, to reflect. And the words of that first song, the chorus, says something along these lines. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. I want you to reflect on the truth of the gospel. I want you to reflect on this hope that we've been given. And I want you to just resonate with this. And if you need to to respond... However God is leading you to respond, you do that. If we read through, if, if in hearing what we spoke together, I hope you recognize that what we said was sharing the gospel with each other. That's all it is, church. It's not some fancy language you have to use. It's not complicated. I am a sinner who needs to be saved. Christ is my Savior. He conquered death that I could have life. And all who believe are part of God's family. That's the hope we have. If you don't believe that, today is the opportunity to do so. If you know that, but you need to step and commit to say, God, I have not lived in light of this truth, then I want you to do that during this first song. And then we're going to close this whole time by singing Living Hope Together. And we're just going to praise the Lord for what He has accomplished, that the law could not, that in Christ we have freedom. And we have life, lasting life. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who has promised lasting eternal life in your Son. God, may we recognize our need even in the midst of difficult seasons. To proclaim this truth and seek to draw all of those who are far out into our family. God, help us to see those opportunities right in front of us. Ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.